Okay, so in high school, I was a bit of a nerd. Too much Klingon, not enough fresh air, whatever, but it wasn't working with the females. So right before college, I decided I'm going to turn over a new leaf. No more nerddom. I'm not going to talk about video games in public. I'm going to pretend I don't even know what a fourth level druid power is. Because now, no one will know me. I can start anew. I'm moving into my new dorm room. Everything's going according to plan. I meet this cool guy. His name's Scott, and he looks just like the lead singer from one of my favorite bands, AHA. He's got the leather bands and everything. We move a few boxes, and he says, let's go downstairs and make it happen. I'm like, yeah. And not two minutes go by before a couple beauties come strolling up, and we're talking. And I don't mention Star Trek one single time. And then one of them says, hey, um, you guys play on the football team? I'm like, uh, no. And she says, do you play basketball? Nope. Okay, well, nice speaking with you. We'll catch you later. And they walk away. All right, all right, all right. We approach another couple of ladies. They don't even engage as far as conversation. Uh, you don't look like the sporting type. Thanks for playing. What? It happens again. And again, and inside... I start to panic. I'm like, no, 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 no. I have done this already. This is supposed to be my new life. And Scott is shaking his head from side to side like an abused puppy. And suddenly I realize that he is a nerd too. A nerd with leather bands and it's all on me. I call my cousin for help and he says, listen, you've got just a few hours to change your life. If you fall into a nerd category now, you stay there forever forever. Do you understand me? Do something. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Again, I want to go drown myself in a Battlestar Galactica rerun session, but I can't. Attention. Attention. I cannot. And then I remember something from this show, Family Ties, that this dude, Alex P. Keaton, did. Alex P. Keaton, overachiever. So I tell my new buddy, Scott, hey, we've got a new club. I'm the president. You're the chairman. Get me a clipboard. The clock is ticking. We run straight to the girls' dormitory, sprint to the top floor, and knock on the first door we get to. A nice young lady answers, and summoning up my last reserves of confidence, I say, Hello. My name's Glenn. This is my buddy Scott, and we're with the Freshman Welcoming Committee. Just wanted you to know that if you need anything at all, feel free to give us a call. Oh, that is great. You guys are so nice. Thank you. It went fantastic. We write her name down and knock on the next door. And the next. And the next. And it was cool. It was going better than good. But that was only one part of the plan. Because understand, this is back in the day when Facebook was actually a book of faces that you only got one copy of when you came to campus. I did the unthinkable and took scissors to mine. Scissors in spectacular nerd fashion. We made flashcards of the faces and drilled each other. Cindy, Preeta, Juanita, Shelly, Francis, Barb, Tamika, again and again and again. We studied like only nerds can, and when we could study no more, we went back out. How you doing, Jennifer? Looking good, Lourdes. And here's the crazy thing. It worked. Don't you forget about me. It actually worked. We were the cool guys who knew everybody. People sought me out for social events. I got the beautiful girl. Scott did too, and they actually seemed to like us. Crazy. I was holding hands one day with my beautiful new girlfriend, marveling at the wonder of it all when Scott passed by holding hands with his. We didn't say anything, but out of sight, just so only Scott could see and no one else, I flashed him the Vulcan salute. Live long and prosper, my friend. Live long and prosper. I'll be your Star Trek. Oh, I'll be your Star Trek girl. I'll be your Star Trek. Be your Star Trek girl. I'll be your Star Trek. Oh, I'll be your Star Trek Now, we're used to imposing our will on the environment. We like to think we're running this show, but the environment more often than we care to admit, imposes its will on us. It makes us. Today on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, 
adaptation. Stories about the struggle, the change, the metamorphosis people go through when adapting to forces beyond their control. Our first story of today's show does contain adult situations. Listener discretion is advised. On the surface, Yolanda's home was perfect. Big house in a nice neighborhood. Three sisters, two parents, and a killer backhand. I played for San Pablo Park Tennis Club. I received a lot of awards. I earned a scholarship also. We had a good child life. But inside that house, something was missing. Still right now today, my mother has never told us she loved us. Never. We want to hear it. At school, Yolanda's boyfriend did tell her what she wanted to hear. So when she got pregnant at 15, she decided to have his baby. I quit school and went to work doing in-home care. So we married. Yolanda's husband started staying out late with other women. We was together maybe about six years. He wasn't home all the time, and then things started falling apart because he started selling drugs. And after that, life started going downhill. I got involved in one drug, and that was crack. I thought maybe I can just try this once and say, okay, I experienced it, okay, wow. I did it for like 25, 20-something years. I'm jonesing, and hey, I need money. I stole once from the home, and that was my grandmother's sterling silver. After that, I was banned from the house. Just to, to be turned away from your own home where you grew up, it's a hurtful feeling. It's a hurtful thing. She tried to reach out to her family for help, but they were all ashamed of her. Door slammed in your face. They answered the phone and he said, hello, mom, click. Yeah, I lost respect for my sisters. Everybody else is successful. And I was the only one that got involved in the fast life. Then I started prostituting to support my habit. And the money was coming so fast and, and the job would only take less than 10 minutes. I did have a pimp. A crack pipe was my pimp. I really thought that pipe became a real person I could depend on and, and that that was going to be with me when nobody else would. Meanwhile, Yolanda was unable to take care of her daughter, Tangi. Tangi was passed off from family member to family member. Aunts, grandmas, but nothing was quite home. Here's Tangi. It was really hard growing up. Very hard. I would just feel like a void, a sense of not belonging. And I always ask myself, well, why? You know, why is it that they aren't raising me? Tangi stole from her grandma's house, just like her mother. And, like her mother, was banned. At certain points in her life, she had to live with Yolanda. I grew up with a lot of resentment. It was kind of difficult being a teenager, living in a household with a mother who you never really knew. Yolanda was still working as a prostitute, and she wasn't home most nights. So Tangi couldn't take Yolanda seriously when she tried to discipline her for staying out late. To where I felt like, hey, she can't tell me nothing. Now you're going to tell me what not to do when you're doing the same thing yourself. And so Tangi left for good. You know, I couldn't find love at home, so I turned to the streets. You feel me? I rebelled. I had to find love somewhere, except in somewhere. Yolanda didn't see her daughter for 12 years. Never heard from her. She moved to L.A., you know, because I, I didn't care about anything or anybody. That's how Tangi felt, too. She didn't worry about me, so why should I worry about her? But Yolanda did care about her daughter. Her addiction was just too powerful, and it prevented her from being able to act on her love. So Yolanda did what she could. She prayed for Tangi every night. I would just hope that she didn't turn, follow my footsteps. Those prayers were too little too late for Tangi. It was already instilled in me, because my father, he was saying, you ain't grow up to be nothing but a crackhead hoe, just like your mama. And I actually grew up believing it. So I was able to accept the fact that, hey, my family already expect me to do it, so might as well go ahead and do it. Tangi felt the same emptiness inside that her mother had, so she filled it with the same thing, a man. A man that just so happened to be a criminal. The feeling of wanting to be a part of. This guy has this, he has all that. You know, go with him, and maybe he'll love you. And so she went down the same path. Once I got addicted to the heavier drugs, um, I just lost it from there. Drinking, smoking, snorting. I've been in and out of jail since I was 12, over 50 times. I only went to jail like maybe three times. I went to prison for eight months, six months. You're going to do what you have to do in order to get that next one. Skin just dirty from not showering. Just wash the private parts and under the arms and the face. 
Prostitution's also my story. Getting raped, robbed, kidnapped. I had two attempt kidnaps happen to me. I stole a vehicle, me and two other friends. Because I give the cops a hard time. They're doing their job. But I figure I'm doing my job too. Things started changing when I started getting tired of the, doing the same thing over and over and over again. People looked at me like I was a monster or some demon. I was stripped of everything. I lost respect for myself. I got just tired of it. But it wasn't until Yolanda's mother contracted emphysema that she decided to leave that life and return home. She couldn't get very far without needing oxygen. So I had to be here for her. It was one day she said, and this is something she has never said during my addiction. You coming back tomorrow? And you know, that made me feel so good. I never heard that out of her mouth before. <laughs> that made me even want to come back more and more each day. So I put everything down. It wasn't easy, but I did. My mom and I to have that bond again, that was the most happiest time of my life I've had, besides gave birth to my child. Yolanda started calling Tanji and begging her to come home. All I, all I ever wanted her to do was come home, and I told her together, you know, I can help her. She can help me as well. She makes me stronger as well, just knowing that she's back into my life again. Tanji's addiction kept her out on the streets. But months later, Yolanda, like her mother, was hospitalized for emphysema. Tanji, like her mother, couldn't help but return home to take care of her. It took for me to have to visit and to see my mother on the hospital bed to make me want to change my life. I would like to have that love, acceptance, and that bond before I lose her. That yearning that I've been craving for all these, these years. When she got clean, that's when I made up my mind, I too can get clean. And I no longer have any resentment towards my mother because I too feel the pain that she's felt being out there. And I know, okay, had she not would have went there, my mom would have did the best she could. I can relate. And that's what makes our relationship so much stronger. Right now, today, I tell my daughter every day, in the mornings, at night, I love you, mom. I love you too, daughter. We still got a little frictions because we both got our hood attitude. <laughs> Don't close the window, it's hot. The car's gonna be going by and you can hear it. It kicks up, doesn't it? Mom, leave, leave that open. <laughs> but I love her to death. And I don't want to have it another way, ever. Yolanda tutors children in Berkeley, and Tanji is getting her associate's degree. She plans on becoming a drug counselor and working with underprivileged teen girls. That story was produced by our own Stephanie Fu. And when Snap Judgment returns, we're going to run a naked mile. We're going to run from a war, and we're running to help a family on the verge of collapse for real. Stay tuned. You're listening to Snap Judgment.
Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the adaptation episode from PRX and NPR. Today on the show, we're exploring this uniquely human ability to adapt to the circumstance, no matter the situation. And this power does not come without a cost. It's rare that a moment happens in your life that changes everything, the way you walk, the way you sleep, every decision you make. But for Ariel Gilbert, her entire existence was turned upside down at the age of 34. I've always been an athlete. I learned how to swim when I was two and a half, but I also was involved in lots of different sports. Rowing, I rowed in singles a lot, you know, out on San Francisco Bay. I was working as a registered nurse at Marin General. I had came home from work and I'd been working the night shift. I was a charge nurse and my eyes were sore from the air conditioned environment. So I decided to stop on the way home and buy some over the counter eye drops. And when I put them in my eyes, uh, I immediately knew there was something wrong. I mean, immediately my eyes just, it was like looking through whole milk. You know, you could, I could see light, but everything was all white. I immediately put my head underwater and started rinsing my eyes out. And all I was thinking was, what, what, what's going on? You know, and getting help. And the phone rang. It made me my way across the room, picked up the phone, and my mom had really good news she wanted to share with me. So I was waiting till she finished with her good news to tell her. Look, I had an accident. Something was wrong with the eye drops I put in my eyes, and I need, I need help. I need to get to the hospital right away. I all of a sudden went from being fully sighted to to blind, all all in one shot. Turned out that the eye drops had uh, drain cleaner in them, real strong concentration of lye. At first I didn't know why it happened and who would have done this. Two weeks after the bottle was produced, the factory closed. It was probably a disgruntled employee that tampered with the bottle. Who knows what the person was thinking, but it, it was happening at the same time as the Tylenol tamperings were going on in the late 80s. They're supposed to put FDA agents in factories that are closing to prevent things like this from happening, and the FDA did not have anyone in this factory when it was closing. As a kid growing up, I was afraid of the dark. It, it's it sort of was like my worst nightmare. The fears of who's there, what's there, and, and here I was that now I'm in the dark all the time. So then I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of food might be tampered with. I was afraid of people. I was afraid of everything. And it, you know, after a while, it's a paralyzing experience to be afraid to the point where you don't do anything or go anywhere. I just basically stayed home and listened to music, and it, it was like, being jettisoned to another planet where everything I had been accustomed to no longer was my reality. I felt like all the things that I used to do were not available to me anymore. I did a lot of photography, I did a lot of jewelry, bird watching. I was very visually aesthetically oriented. And after I lost my sight, I thought those things were not a part of my life anymore. Some people that I thought were my friends disappeared when I lost my sight, something that some people couldn't hang with, including my husband at the time. He signed on for the person I was. He didn't sign on for a 34-year-old that was basically at the level of a toddler. Yes, I'm physically alive, but I don't have any value in my life, and therefore it's like being dead. Uh, actually, a friend of mine who I rowed with came by the house and she said, I'm taking rowing, you don't need to see to row in a double and you're not going to argue with me. And she just drug me into the car and <laughs> off we went. I remember being scared, walking down on the dock and not being sure of my footing and getting into the boat, which was rocky, and I wasn't sure that it was going to be stable enough for me to get in, and getting in the boat and pushing off the dock and the first few strokes feeling a little, you know, wobbly. And then all of a sudden, everything just sort of fell into place. It, my muscle memory of what to do and how to do it. and You have to really feel the movement in the boat, the movement of the other rowers, listen to the oars turning in the oar locks. And, and, and actually, it was one of the greatest gifts that anybody could have given me because it, that was something that at a time where I was incompetent at everything, I realized 
wow, I can, I can do this. So we, we rode for about an hour and that a feeling of being able to move through space without any repercussions like I had been feeling was a really great in-body experience for me to go, wow, you know, I need to relook at my life. After I had gone rowing with her, I continued to row. Water is beautiful, flat, calm, glassy. That's it, way to stay on it. These are the Marin Rowing Association's competitive masters women's team. That's it, way to stay on it. Come on now, come on, yes you can. And uh, yeah, we come out here four days a week to coach them. The thing about Ariel's, we don't even notice that she's blind. So much so that sometimes people forget to tell her that there's a step coming. Last 10, last 10. It's the only time in my waking hours that I can forget that I'm blind is when I'm in a boat rowing because it's all about the feel, the sound. So I started thinking, okay, what, what do I need in my life in order to make it feel like it has any value to me, that it's worth living? And everything all boiled down to the same thing, which was I needed to be independent. I knew about guide dogs. I got, my first dog was a yellow lab named Webster. I do bird watch now, I take pictures now. I like to take pictures of people because I can have them talk to me and then I can target the sound. Last summer I did my first triathlon. This whole thought process, oh, you can't ride a bike. Well, I'm like, oh, and a tandem, yeah, okay. That thought process of how can I accomplish something even if it doesn't look like the way other people did it. I do a lot of the things that I used to do. Ariel continues to get way more done than I do. She works as an outreach manager for Guide Dogs for the Blind and recently donated a kidney to a friend. We'll have a video of Ariel rowing. You can see it for yourself on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. Now, if you've listened to Snap Judgment at all, you know that we've gone back and forth to Liberia. And just to remind you, in 1990, Charles Taylor marched rebel forces through the country toward the capital, Monrovia. Along the way, he forcibly enlisted scores of child soldiers and forced them to do the dirty work. This is a story from one of those young soldiers. Please note, for sensitive listeners, this story does contain graphic depictions of wartime Liberia. This is not the story of a boy who escaped war. This is not the story of a boy who refused to fight in a war or a boy who rushed to war. Benjamin Wolo's story is of a boy who learned to fight a war. It began one morning at home when Charles Taylor's rebels came for recruits. One morning, I just saw heavy gunfire. It was surrounded and were captured by rebels. Benjamin didn't even know how to load a gun. He had to be trained. Everybody was forced to go and take training. They didn't care how scared he was. The men with the guns make all the decisions. It was a day I had to do things not at my will, but because of the safety of my life, I have to. Because you were under the influence of the man with the gun. In the beginning, Benjamin found courage wherever he could. At the beginning there, we have marijuana, alcohol, king juice. Leaders on all sides of the conflict provided drugs to numb their new recruits. The first time I killed someone was, uh, I was kind of afraid, but uh, I've gone to training. If you don't kill someone, they kill you, so you got you to gotta, you gotta know what to do. And as the war spread through the country, Benjamin found reasons to continue fighting. Other men with guns from different rebel groups or from the government came for his friends, for his family. He no longer wanted to leave the rebel front. He did what it took to accomplish his mission. He graduated from officer to general. So we had to kill friends to be able to accomplish the mission. No, no time I tried to leave. I was totally against the government that was in power. I did not like that government, so I really wanted to tackle that government. He learned more than just killing. He learned to fight terror with more terror. Liberia's rebels were said to open the stomachs of their victims and use their intestines as roadblocks. We fought them, we ambushed some of them, killed them. 
open the stomach to serve as a deterrent to other ones that come in so that they can get scared and run away so that we can keep advancing. My family did not know where I was at that time. Benjamin's family found him one day on the front line. His parents saw that their son took up arms. Benjamin had become someone different, much different. Oh, my dad got mad with me. I just had to tell you, you had to understand. I had to do what I had to do. But Benjamin continued to fight. The rebels closed in on the capital. There were bodies all in the street. People looting, no water, no food. It was bad. Kind of bad. Other people wandered the streets hungry, but not Benjamin. He was the man holding the gun now. You have gone at the end of the day. You have food, you have water, because I've waited. I must eat first. Benjamin took food from civilians. He was a general. For 13 years, Benjamin ate, slept, lived, fought with rebel fighters, and finally, in 2003, Liberia's war ended. As part of the reconciliation process, the international community paid the rebel fighters to turn in their arms. They gave uh, $100 for um, each arm you take. They gave you that amount. So for $100, Benjamin handed over his power. He gave up his gun. It was difficult. You know, power is something so sweet. Who don't like power? I want to see somebody who don't like power to put their hand up. Me, I like power. So. So after fighting for 13 years, Benjamin needs to adapt to life without the things he wanted, the money, jeep, status. He has to adapt to peace. It's now that I'm feeling bad. Because at that time, you know, when you're fighting, things are fine. You have anything you want. You got food, you got money, you got car, you got nothing to worry about. But for now, now I don't have a car. I was married, now I'm divorced because I can't afford for my woman. I don't have a job. It's kind of difficult. You have to let go. There's time for everything. That story was produced by Anna Sussman with help from Tamison Ford in Liberia. Big thanks as well to Benjamin Wolo for sharing his story with SNAP. Now, we're leaving Africa and going over to Asia, Cambodia, where one family's story reveals just how powerful our instinct toward adaptation really is. Piran lost his dad when he was 15. My father was a good man. He would treat his children all equally, and he never gave us a hard time, and we know that he, he loved us so much. It was 1975, and the Khmer Rouge swept across Cambodia. They marched everyone to work camps. Piran's family carried their belongings on their shoulders through the fields. After days of walking, they stopped to rest at a pagoda, and the Khmer Rouge took Piran's father away at gunpoint. I still had, had hope at the time. I didn't know that he would be killed. Piran was sent to work in a youth labor camp, pulling a plow. They forced us to work as like cows, pull the plows, which the soldiers holding the plow at the back, you know, and have guns. After the hard labor around 5.30 to 6 o'clock, I was waiting for him on the dirt road at the sunset, and we just hoped that he would come by. But uh, day after day, week after week, and month after month, I never see him come back at all. My hope was fading away. Piran and his family were told that his father was executed by the Khmer Rouge. He was gone. They needed to move on. We just put in our heart that he's dead. We never see him again, so just forget about it. Stop the pain, you know, stop the pain. Piran, his six brothers and sisters, and his mother fled to Canada as refugees. During the Khmer Rouge genocide, four out of seven Cambodians were killed. They had lost only one. They counted their blessings and began to build a new life without their father. All these 30 years since I've been in Canada, I have had dreams about my father. All of a sudden, I saw my father was walking toward me, coming to me, I said, I'm not dead, I'm alive. I thought, oh, Dad, you're still alive, you know? I was exciting. Then I woke up in the middle of the night. 
I think that it's possible that he's still alive. It's just to make me feel happy at the moment. But after about half an hour, I know that I felt sad again because I, I'm crazy. It's impossible. Then, Piran's brother began to visit a psychic in Ottawa. The psychic, her name is Connie. Connie said, I, I see your father is alive. And my brother said, you're crazy. You must be kidding. He's been dead for a long time ago. 35 years ago, he said. So when he came back home, and he told all that to my sisters, my brothers over there, and my mother. Hey, this Connie told me that our father's still alive. And they were, they were laughing, you know. They were laughing and saying, oh, this uh, psychic is crazy. And it's impossible. But Piran thought the psychic was a sign. You know, I was excited. This is the make me uh, have a strong hope that it's possible that my father's still alive. Piran was in Cambodia. He decided to search for his father. I made up the flyers or the posters, thousands and thousands of posters, and also I put the ad in the newspaper. The posters had a picture of his father and Piran's cell phone number. He hopped on a motorbike and crisscrossed the Cambodian countryside. So I went through the jungles. I went through Piran's the, search went on for months. Went through the field. He spent hundreds of dollars and followed countless false leads. I felt exhausted and I felt that he was probably dead. The psychic was wrong, totally wrong. Until one day, a group of women in a market near the Thai border said they saw a beggar who looked just like the man in the poster. The people in the market, they saw a beggar that looked like your father. They told me that he looks like so much like your father. He must be your father. Everyone said, that's him. That's him. <laughs> when I met him the first time, around 5 o'clock, near the market, beside the road, he looked at me, and I looked at him. All of a sudden, he cried, and he cried. But he said, you're not my son. And I said, you are not my father either. The people that are standing around us, they said, that's your father. That's your son. It must be your son. It must be your father because we look so similar. The people asked him, why when you meet him, why you cry? He said, it reminds me about the past, about his children before. But they all dead a long time ago. Piran took the old man to a tea shop. When he managed to stop crying, the beggar explained that the Khmer Rouge had tortured him over and over again. When the war finished, all he remembered was that he once had a family. But after years of wandering the countryside, he came to realize they had all died. It's only thing that he knew that he had family, but he could not remember faces. He could not remember our names. He said that he walked, he wondering just in case one of us would see him and recognize him and call him. For over 30 years, Piran thought his dad was dead too. So he didn't believe the old beggar was his father, but something stirred inside of him, and he took pity on the man. He took some pictures and bought him some new clothes. Then he went back to his hotel and sent the pictures back to his family in Canada. And they compare his picture with the old picture of him. The eyes, eyebrows, the nose, the lips, the mouth, the chin, the jaw, it's all match up. It's just like one person. Piran visited the man every week for months. They grew close to each other and decided to call each other father and son, even if they were not convinced of their biological connection. The old man had the same temperament, the same personality as Piran's dad. Piran and his brothers and sisters were almost convinced they had found their father. But his mother needed one more test. She came up with a plan. The egg versus the pumpkin. She still wanted to test my father. When you go to see him next time, buy a salted eggs. Because your father before loved salted eggs. But also make a stir-fried pumpkin with pork. Anything that with pumpkin, a nice dish, because he never ate pumpkin. So I did that. I bought salty eggs and I made a nice stir-fried pumpkin. Then 
I was having lunch with him. I said, what What do you like? He, he pointed, uh, he wanted salty eggs. So I gave him salty eggs. And then I gave him, uh, would you like pumpkin, stir-fried pumpkin and pork? It's so tasty. He doesn't touch at all the pumpkin and he ate four salty eggs. My mother was laughing, said, that's him, that's him, that's him, no, that's him. So we all have a big joy and we're celebrating tears and, and joy. For Piran and his family, it was enough. That story was produced by Anna Sussman, Renzo Gorio, and Thomas Miller in Cambodia. Now when Snap Judgment returns, we're going to run that naked mile. For real. Stay tuned. You're listening to Snap Judgment Adaptation. Back to Snap Judgment, the adaptation episode. I'm Glenn Washington, and for most people, their instinct is to run away from that which they fear most. When the demon is at the gate, high. But others, they choose to embrace what they cannot escape. When I was 21 years old, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I had my breast removed, then went through six months of chemotherapy. And I didn't opt for um, breast reconstruction initially because I just thought, look, I want to wake up and it's going to be horrible to see a scar and no breast, but I wanted to experience my new body. I didn't want to hide what had happened. As I was approaching 10 years of, you know, celebrating being cancer free, which is sort of a big marker in the cancer community. You know, like if you make it five years, you're home free. If you make it 10 years, you're never getting cancer again. But in my case, um, I found a lump in my remaining breast. So that kind of punctured my bubble of thinking that this marker was actually like my ticket to ride. What was more difficult for me to endure the second time was chemotherapy. I was treated with this chemical called adriamycin, and they call it the red devil because it's literally red. What it did is I felt I couldn't escape my body. It, it was almost like my muscles never felt relaxed. I felt so bad for so long that I thought, the minute I, I feel better, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really use my body, and I actually did. I started running at the gym. And my lady friend and life partner, Angela, was like, you know, I really want to run a 10K. And I'm like, me too. Um, So I started training. It was Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It was a breast cancer awareness race and breast cancer awareness, breast cancer awareness. And I thought, I am totally aware. And I'm really aware of the fact that maybe there are women out there who are approaching making a decision about whether or not they get a mastectomy. And maybe they've never seen what that looks like. Nobody showed me what it looked like to survive breast cancer. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna do a breast cancer awareness race. I'm gonna take off my shirt and I'm gonna run the whole 10K. I made the decision, we found the race, we're ready to do it. Night before, I'm like, what if I get arrested for indecent exposure? The state law um, is this. If you're not exposing any areola and you're not going to derive any sexual pleasure from the act, then you're safe. So I had my nipple removed, no areola, right? And I wasn't going to get off on running 6.1 miles. Maybe a little. 
So everything was cool. I would take off my shirt and then take off. So we arrive at the race at six in the morning and it's freezing. Thousands of people show up and I start to freak out about this because I think, okay, even though it's a breast cancer awareness race, maybe uh, they don't need to be that aware. I then start to see the people who I'm running with and I think, oh my gosh, these are real people and they're gonna look at me and I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can go through with it. So that felt weird and scary to me, just in itself. And I'm really vulnerable. I'm showing my chest. I, I have these scars. I, ne I never take off my shirt in front of people who I'm not intimately involved with. So I just, ha I got all this adrenaline. And then there was a woman and she was really close to me. So I said, look, in a few minutes, I'm gonna take off my shirt and you're gonna see two mastectomy scars. She just paused for a long time. And then she sort of said, can I hug you? And then the announcer's like, runners go. So I took off my shirt and started the race. My body's moving. Okay, it's moving, it's moving. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Ooh, it's cold, it's cold. Passing people, and okay, this is cool. I can do this, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. I don't have boobies, but I can still kick some serious ass. By the time I crossed the finish line, I was really exhilarated and excited and happy. I was ready to celebrate with all my breast cancer survivor sisters and brothers out there. But as we started walking around the premises, I started noticing people, you know, gently avoid eye contact with me or try to sneak a peek um, or beeline away from me as if I was sort of like some opposing magnet. To me, they weren't avoiding my eye contact because they were disgusted by me. I really came to understand in, in doing these topless 10K that I think it comes from a place of not accepting themselves and their own physiques, which maybe look like mine. So whether or not these people came up to me, I knew that it had this sort of ripple effect of conversations that would have to occur afterwards. So I'll keep, I'll keep on running until one day everybody takes off their shirt. I don't want to be the only one. That story was produced by our own Natalia Yeager. We'll have a link to Tanya Katan's book, My One Night Stand with Cancer. Now, for our final story of the adaptation episode, we've got something special for you. We're going to go to the live show, Snap Judgment Live, where the best storytellers in the land break it down for a sold-out Snap Judgment audience. We can't wait for you to hear it. If you have not seen the movie, check it out at snapjudgment.org. What can I tell you? Our next guest is a comedian, a nerd, and she actually taught charm school at MIT. <laughs> Please put your hands together. It's Miss Daya Lakshmi Narayanan. I get a phone call while I'm away at college. It's my mother, my perfectly round mother. She describes herself as a jolly optimist. Once she convinced a family friend of ours not to take her own life by saying, suicide? No, you will not do this. Because you are too lazy. You will get the stool and the rope and think, I'll do it just tomorrow. <laughs> it worked. That lady's still alive now. I pick up the phone. Baby, it's me. No need to worry. Everything will be okay. You don't have to come home. <laughs> I freak out and book a ticket home. I fly home to find my dad checked out. He's reclining on the lazy boy, watching bad TV reruns. Hey, Dad. How are you doing? Shh. Matlock is real. My dad had just been laid off, 
And to add humiliation to trauma, he became one of the millions of Americans denied health insurance because of a previously existing condition, diabetes. My brother could feel the middle-class American dream slipping through our hands. Daya, do I have to make fast food burgers? Because that's what the kids at school say that poor people have to do. This was a double insult, because this meant he wouldn't make that much money, and we were Hindu vegetarians. <laughs> my family's future was riding on my mom overcoming her past. My mom immigrated from Chennai, India, when she was 21 years old. She was the oldest of five children. Her dad died when she was nine years old, and her mother, my grandmother, was a widow in South Indian society, an outcast. She had to give up her children to be raised by others. When my mother married my dad, she weighed 85 pounds because of malnutrition. And she's my height, five feet. In the wedding pictures, she looks beautiful and damn hungry. <laughs> it was this time that my mom decided that she wanted to go back to school. Baby, I think at this age, 40, I want to go back to school. Mom, you're 45. <laughs> we don't have to tell everybody the truth all the time. She asked me to help out. She has to take a basic math exam to get into school. And she's getting stuck on the transitive property. Transitive property. Two definitions. First, of or characterized by transition. My family knew this all too well. My mom only admitted to me a few years ago we were on food stamps for the first three years of my life. Definition number two from math. If A is equal to B and B is equal to C, therefore A is equal to C. I don't understand this. Explain it to me again. Explain it to me again. Well... It just means if A is equal to B <laughs> and B is equal to C, therefore A is equal to C. You just said the same thing slower and louder. That doesn't help me. Well, I don't know what to do. So then I decide to explain it in Tamil, which is my mom's first language. But the thing is, I don't know how to say equals in Tamil. And... A, there's five characters associated with A. So it ends up just sounding like A, B, equal on the, B, C, equal on the, A, C, equal. You just said the same thing with useless Tamil words thrown in for my benefit. <laughs> Mom, I don't know how else to explain this to you. This is basic math. It's very easy. Didn't you learn this at school or anything? And at this moment, my mother speaks to me directly in Tamil. And when she speaks in Tamil, it's like speaking in italics because she's about to say something honest and truthful that's not masked by humor and jokes. So translated, it was something like, in my childhood, nobody cared if I had eaten that day. If I was at school, it meant I was out of the way. It didn't matter if I learned anything. This is why I'm not smart. Not like you and your brother. Mom, you're smart. You're really smart. You had to learn English when you came to the United States. How did you do that? Lucy, Carol Burnett, <laughs> TV shows. That's American, Mom. Okay. What's your favorite show now? The one with the Jew. Can you be more specific? <laughs> Seinfeld. 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 Okay. Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld. So, like, if Jerry Seinfeld tells Elaine a secret, that's like A is equal to B. And if Elaine tells that secret to Kramer, B equals C, that's just as if Jerry had told Kramer in the first place. A is equal to C. Oh, 
इट इज वेरी सिंपल माई डैड इज रिटायर्ड एंड ही हैज हेल्थ इंश्योरेंस हिज डायबिटीज इज अंडर कंट्रोल ही डजेंट वॉच मैथ लॉक ही प्रिफर्स मंक माई ब्रदर ही डजेंट मेक एज मच मनी एज ही वुड हैव इफ ही स्टेट फ्लिपिंग बर्गर्स बिकॉज ही इज अ ग्रेजुएट स्टूडेंट एट येल My mom passed that exam. She got into school and now she works as a software engineer. She has finished watching all the Seinfeld episodes, so now she tries to explain friends to me. A and B went out, B and C broke up, D and E got back together. So that's just like A and E dating, right? <laughs> that's my mom. Thank you, Dialexina Ryanen. Now, if by some chance of fate you miss seeing the Snap Judgment movie, the film, well, run, do not walk. It's available right now for free on our website, snapjudgment.org. Now we've reached the end. We've reached the end together, but do not despair because podcasts, movies, films, music, pictures, stuff is all available on our website. Snap was produced by myself, but never alone. Never alone. Right there in the next room, he sits. He reclines. The Uber producer fiddling knobs even as we speak. Mr. Mark Ristich, Anna, almost African Sussman, Stephanie, no GPS food. Rita, can't stand the rain. Daniels, additional snap magic powered by Will, cheeseburger, cheeseburger. Urbina, Mitchy Mock, the Queen of Rock, and Natalia Yeager, Hager Kager. Electro audio chemical neurological wizardry provided by Pat Masidi Miller and Renzo Gorio. Did you ever find that prize at the bottom of the cereal box? Well, me neither. But still, we'd like to thank the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the CPB, and don't forget PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX to the ORG. And even though this is not the news, there is no news happening here. In fact, you get climbed. Top of the highest tree, leap into the sky, fall down, hit every single branch and stick on the way down, only to realize the old man lied when he sold you the power of flight for three hundred and fifty-seven dollars. You could do all of that and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.